In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode of Conspiracy Unlimited, an explorer and entrepreneur describes his expedition to the Arctic to find an entrance into the interior of the Earth. When we gather all the evidence and we look at it, we try to prove or disprove a hypothesis. There's not enough proof to prove Earth is not hollow. There's too many questions unanswered, and the only way to answer them is to actually go above the Arctic Circle and look for this opening in the crust. This podcast is brought to you by International Star. Choosing a gift for someone special can be a daunting task. Whether it's a birthday, Mother's Day, Father's Day, anniversary, or any other big day, you want a gift that's unique and perfect for that person who already has everything. International Star Registry can help. They've been providing unique gift ideas for over 25 years. International Star Registry lets you name an actual star in the sky after your special someone. It's the most special gift of all time. Name a star after someone you care for, and they'll remember it forever and never forget your thoughtfulness. The address is GetArealStar.com. GetArealStar.com to give someone the gift of a real star in the sky. That address again, GetArealStar.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of 
opposite reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. So the other day, I'm homeschooling, and one of my twin boys asks me if the Earth is hollow. And I thought, wow, that's a cool question. I I can't say for sure that it is, and I can't say for sure that it's not. Why do you ask? Then he pointed up at the uh, globe of the world that we have on a shelf, and he said, hollow? True, I said. Then he said, if the Earth were solid, how would it maintain its orbit? Hmm... And then I came up with what I thought was a brilliant response. Oh, look, it's time for recess. But seriously, do planets form as hollow spheres rather than as solid balls? Is our Earth hollow and is the interior of our Earth inhabited? If so, by what or whom? You know, we can actually blame the hollow Earth theory on Sir Edmund Halley, the astronomer who discovered Halley's Comet. Back in 1672, he wrote a theory that the Earth was a series of shells. We live on the outer shell. Under the thrust, under the crust comes a hollow space filled with air. Then the next shell, another air space, another shell, more air. And finally, the Earth's core, he wrote. And he believed that the three air spaces were capable of supporting life and were lit up continuously by what he called luminous air. He also believed these inner Earths were inhabited by people and animals. Well, the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition is arguably the most innovative and courageous exploration effort in modern times. At present, we are not able to go to the moon. We're probably decades away from manned exploration to Mars. But this expedition to the North Pole region in search of an entrance into the interior of the Earth is possible and within reach. Brooks Agnew is a multi-patented electrical engineer and a six-time Amazon best-selling author of nine books. He's widely featured in numerous scientific documentaries. He's an internationally acclaimed lecturer on energy, manufacturing, and quality improvement while working with numerous Fortune 100 companies. He's been the host of X Squared Radio for 13 years and currently serves as the CEO of an electric truck manufacturing company in North Carolina. For over a decade, he has been heavily involved in researching and planning an expedition to the North Pole in search of an opening into the interior of the Earth. Brooks Agnew, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I am doing great, Richard. It's good to hear from you. Likewise. It's been a while. I think uh, 2011 we were trying to figure out when we did that episode for my uh, television show, The Conspiracy Show. Oh, that's right. You've been busy writing, my friend. You've got uh, this book about the rise of the Clinton crime family, Charm Favor. Do you want to spend a couple minutes telling us about that? Yeah. Um, it w- it kind of came at me. Uh, from the side, of course, you know, I do X squared radio every Sunday evening and I kind of talk about what I want to talk about. And I, I've just noticed over the last, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years, this has really, uh, gotten corrupt. So when I was writing the birth trilogy, which was 2015, um, one of the things that came out in that book was this, this overwhelming kind of dark side um it was almost supernatural in the way that these individuals seem to operate that they can 
take money, they can flout the law, they can lie in front of Congress, they can do virtually anything they want to do, and, and nothing happens to them. They never get arrested. So um, I finished the birth trilogy in January, and I had some notes laying around that I did not include in the trilogy because that was more or less a, a book about the origin and destiny of the earth, and it was designed to give people a really high spiritual experience at the same time, you know, being a white knuckle ride and action adventure, big screen mm. CGI and print. So I had these notes laying around. I started looking through them and I said, well, I wonder what happens if I put these in chronological order. And wow. I mean, the whites of my eyes were showing big time because when I started putting all the notes, notes in order, I noticed a, a definite sense of planning and it wasn't a sense of planning for 30 years or 40 years it was a sense of planning for about 200 years hmm. and you know men <coughs> excuse me men are very uh, uh egotistical animals even from father to son and certainly from grandfather to grandson the the the, the fork in the road is definitely taken with each generation but that was not the case when I put these notes together. What I saw was a very concerted, concentrated, focused effort to take America apart, to try to beat America. It went to war three times. It uh, assassinated a couple of presidents. It uh, killed congressmen. It killed senators. It took the lives of eight Russian diplomats in about a four-month period period, rapid succession, right as uh, the 2016 election was winding up. I'm a statistician by my day job. I, I'm a Six Sigma master black belt. So I crunch numbers every day for the Fortune 500 and help them become more efficient. And I couldn't help myself. I had to go through the polling results of the 2016 election to find out what the heck went wrong. Why Why did this happen? While I was putting the poll numbers together that virtually every news station, every radio station, every newspaper was saying that Hillary was, had a 98% chance of winning, what I was seeing on TV was something completely different. I saw Trump pulling in 20, 30,000 people per rally. There were 10,000 people standing outside. There were 50,000 people watching it live on YouTube. And I went wait a minute, there's a lot of energy here that's not showing up in those polls. So I decided to try to do a demographic study. What? Why are they missing it so badly? And then I started looking at the operating papers of most of the pollsters. They call landlines. Mm -hmm. they, they call landlines because they need demographic information. This person lives at this address in this voting district. It's not like, you know, I have a a Charlotte area code on my cell phone, but I'm currently working in Chicago. Well, they don't want to talk to me in Chicago. They want to talk to me in Charlotte. So they call landlines. Well, people that have landlines are over 60 years old. They own their own home. They're in a completely different demographic. Plus, in 2012, when this actually worked, there was no such thing as a smartphone. People had cell phones, but you didn't have smartphones. In 2016, everybody, even elderly people, have smartphones. And they're not getting their news on cable. 
or on satellite. They're getting their news on their phone. They're reading Drudge Report, Breitbart, World Net Daily, Newsmax, you, me. I mean, they're getting their news from alternative sources. And they're making up their own minds. So I said, okay, I'm going to survey 1,000 smartphone owners and see how they're going to vote. <laughs> 85% of them were voting for Trump. I went, uh-oh. So I figured 78% of the people, about 22% of the people have landlines. 78% of the people have smartphones. So 85% of 78% comes out to 314 electoral votes. That's what I calculated. Mm -hmm. He won 305. So where did the nine show up? New Mexico. So I went to New Mexico, not physically, but but uh, uh, electronically. Looked at the voting, the way it was uh, stratified out in the state. There were three counties that swung the state Democratic. <coughs> there were three counties that swung the state Democratic, and each one of them had more Democrat votes than they have registered Democrats. <laughs> So Trump really did win 314 electoral votes, just as I calculated. So that's when I knew I was really on to something. So, and I was actually at the time looking for a name for the book. I was about 200 pages into it. And I was talking with my editor. <coughs> I was talking with my editor. And she said, you know, I was watching James Comey. And he was answering some questions before Congress. And he was talking and everything, but he wasn't saying anything. They would ask him questions, and he would just walk around the question like it wasn't even there. And they would just nod their heads like, oh, sure, okay, that's great. And they would just go on to the next question. It was like he had a charm of favor. I went, what did you say? It, it was like he had a charm of favor. Well, that was it. That was the title of the book. And that string pulled tight and it resonated all the way through the book. And the book is all true events. It's all right out of the news, right out of court records, right out of, um, you know, news reports or history. And then what I did is take uh, my fictional characters and weave them into the book so that it carries the reader along through those events on the ground level. We go through the Seth Rich murder, Benghazi, um, all kinds of drug cartel activity, mm -hmm. moving money to Iran, the Islamization of the agencies in Washington. And it, the book actually ends um, somewhere around May of this year. So... In the book, and I was writing as fast as I could write. Believe me, I wrote four uh, bigger than 400-page books in two years. So that's a lot of writing. I was writing as fast as I could write because I would finish a chapter, and literally two weeks later, what I wrote about in that chapter would happen. That's how quick this book was going along. Unbelievable. So, I mean, this, uh, this whole last year, every day was like another Robert Ludlum novel. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then the murders, you know, uh, Samantha Power was unmasking all these Russian names and or all these American names that had been tied to Russians. And then they went and killed all the Russians. And 
I went, oh my gosh, what is going on here? And I realized that sooner or later, the Department of Justice or or the administration is going to start draining the swamp. It's going to start opening these closets. It's going to start forcing them to come out in the open to do battle. And when that happens, everybody's going to see them for who they are. And there's one thing about a, a mean killer dog. When you back that dog into a corner, that is when he is his most dangerous. So this this book, uh, I mean, we could do an entire show on uh, on this book, and we and we should at some point. But I, if I could, I'd like to to go back to what I know you best for, and that is your efforts to find an entrance into our hollow earth. The last we spoke, it was 2011, and uh, you had originally uh, thought of leasing a, a nuclear icebreaker. And you were going to take some scientists and some filmmakers and, and you were going to try and find uh, the entrance into the hollow earth in the, uh, in the Arctic from the North Pole. Uh, that didn't happen, obviously. Uh, but you're, you're gearing up for another expedition, correct? Uh, well, uh, sort of, virtually. Uh, I joined the expedition in 2005 when Stephen Curry was running it. He unfortunately got taken out by uh, rapid onset brain cancer, the, the same thing that, that John McCain has, except that John McCain has access to a lot better health care than Steve did, because it took Steve in like four months, he was gone. So I, I kind of figured, well, you know, that was, that was a nice idea. <laughs> but then a few months later, in the fall, the group that was working with him called me up and said, look, you're, you're used to doing big, big projects. You do multi-million dollar launches all the time. Why don't you, why don't you take over the expedition and, and see if you can't get it launched? I said, okay. <clears throat> so I gave it some thought and realized that the, the business model that they had, which was basically to sell a uh, hundred seats to rich tourists. And then, you know, the four of them were going to try to, take advantage of that money and and get aboard the boat and maybe you know take some film and see if they could see an opening i said why don't we approach this from a different standpoint why don't we go to the top universities that are studying this phenomenon let's invite them to send two grad students and we'll pay their way then we'll bring a professional film crew on we'll run We'll run it like a reality program. We'll have 70 scientists, 20 film crew, and 10 of our staff members to kind of coordinate everything and make sure, you know, nothing gets packed off to the universities without us getting a copy of it. And let's look for things that make sense, like the crystallinity of two oceans that might be mixing together somewhere up in the Arctic. Maybe magnetometry or atmospheric measurements or maybe even samples off the seafloor or microbial samples, all kinds of things that we could prove or disprove that there's some kind of opening in the crust that goes to a subterranean ocean. Because Washington University, Dr. Y. Sessions and his grad students had already published their paper that they had through analyzing 600,000 seismograms, these printouts from earthquakes that the size seismographs gather, a sort of like a, like a CAT scan of the earth, 
they determined that there was another ocean underneath the Atlantic Ocean, underneath the crust. I had no idea that that major universities were actually studying this. Oh, sure, yeah. We had Harvard, MIT, Stanford University, Washington University, Cambridge. We had uh, uh, a group out of Tokyo, and I cannot remember who they were with. We published a pilot film, and we ran it in the Genes of Galileo contest in Tokyo, and we won. We had 17 million viewers in one night. And... I mean, there's a there was a tremendous following for this. So when you uh, met me in 2011, the economy was <laughs> I mean, it was it was it was like a wasteland out there. There was no investment in anything. No, it was flatlining. It was absolutely flatlined. So we kept setting our sights for the following summer, and then the following summer, and then the Yamal was was. Uh, uh, taken apart it was retired this was the icebreaker that you were going to uh, to lease right that was one of the icebreakers and the next one was the the uh the captain kalibnikov it went into the chop shop the next one was the 50 years of glory and it was probably 35 years old at the time and the russians have just launched a brand new icebreaker bigger faster brand spanking new it's called the arctica and it's nuclear powered, and it's Murmansk Shipping Company, not Minsk. Ah, right. Uh, but we'll be sailing from there to Helsinki, and then from Helsinki we'll we'll go out the ten days in this area of about ten thousand square miles to see if we can find this oceanic depression, this anomaly that that so many mariners have reported. Um, and you have the and you have the funds already to go and raised to to lease this vessel. No, that's no. that was the main problem. It turned from uh, it went from about two point one million dollars in two thousand eight. It's now up to about three point six million dollars to make that same venture. Uh, that is way more money that's ever been spent on any expedition, except maybe going to the moon. Uh, so financially, it's probably not possible. And and of course, we went to all the big cable companies, and and truth be known. They're just resellers. They they most of the stuff that they do is animated. They might spend ten thousand dollars per episode, and that's about it. I mean, the most expensive show they produce is the is the uh, one where the guys are are uh, fishing for Alaskan king crab off the right. Pacific Northwest. That's right. the most expensive show they produce. Everything else is way way less expensive than that. But we went to all of them, and they they said, "Oh, we'd be we'd, be, we'd love to show the program when it's done." Mm-hmm. And they didn't even want to let us use their logos in the advertisements to go looking for money. They didn't want that, so uh, we decided to back off of the big screen, and we started. We decided to go for the small screen, and I don't mean the TV; I mean the phone, the pad. So we're now talking to the folks at Netflix. And Netflix is highly interested in doing a 13-piece series, which will consist of all the data that I've collected since since 2004 on this, which is probably more than anybody else on the planet. Uh, and it incorporates a lot of work of predecessors before me. But we've done – I've been to nine nations now look, following this myth. We've taken film. We've done interviews. We've taken samples. It's it's incredible the stuff that we have accumulated, and still, we cannot prove 
that Earth is made the way the current geology says it's made, that we live on this molten ball floating through space, and we live on these tectonic plates like, you know, cornflakes in a bowl of milk. That's that's the best analogy I can use. So you're more convinced than ever that that this is a hollow Earth? No, I'm more convinced than ever that the question is legitimate. You Mm. know, I'm a scientist. Uh, People say, well, you believe in hollow Earth. No, I don't don't believe ever in my life have I ever said that. You can't find any tape or writing where I say that. What I do believe in is science and uh, the scientific method. So when we gather all the evidence and we look at it, we try to prove or disprove a a hypothesis. There's not enough proof to prove Earth is not hollow. There's too many questions unanswered. And the only way to answer them is to actually go above the Arctic Circle and look for this opening in the crust. Even if it's not there, which the ocean's 4,400 meters deep up there, so it's not like we can go down on the bottom and look. But even if the opening is not there, we don't find it. It doesn't mean that planets don't form as hollow spheres. We have plenty of examples of that since 2011 that we found in our own solar system of hollow spheres. Oh, really? In space. Well, sure. the, the, was it Sir Edmund Haley was the founder of uh, or the, the, the namesake of Haley's Comet? He believed that, that celestial bodies, planets were formed as hollow spheres, correct? Sir Isaac Newton and Sir Edmund Haley. Uh, Edmund Haley was in 1629. Then we had uh, Gardner uh, Stevens, who patented the idea, died of pneumonia looking for it. Uh, there have been several novels that have been written about it, Edadorfa and mm. The Smoky God, and you know, lots of people believe in these novels. I, I don't, because I could tell you right now, I went to Mammoth Cave. I went to Mammoth Cave eight times, And I spent a sizable amount of time, no small amount of time, with the staff at Mammoth Cave, quizzing them and questioning them, going down in the caves. And I asked them, look, it's just you and me down here under the ground. What's the deepest hole you've ever found here in Mammoth Cave? And they said, well, the deepest we've ever gone is about 366 feet. I said, really? So the story that sometime in the 1800s, this was open, like all the way to the middle of the earth, and a man walked from here to the center of the earth. They said, well, you know, if the crust is as thick as you say, eight or 900 miles thick, uh, he would be walking for about four months. And that means he has to carry food and water and light. <laughs> right to get down there and he would never make it he would never make it no even even if he went straight down 900 miles at 40 miles an hour which is not very practical it would still take a long time to get there so no that's (laughs) not where the opening is obviously um, right. But what, what do you make or what uh, what what are your thoughts on Sir Richard uh, Admiral Byrd's uh, a supposed journal that he saw an opening while flying over the South Pole? Well, actually, it was see how this all gets confused. <laughs> he flew over the North Pole in 1926. Mm-hmm. Uh, he bought a boat called the Chantilly. Uh, which was a freighter, but it was a small freighter. The plane that he wanted to take wouldn't fit on the boat, so they took it apart 
and put it on the boat. Then they sailed to Spitsbergen, Norway. <clears throat> now, <laughs> as luck would have it, when they got there, there was about a 10-hour window period when they could unload this boat because the seas were getting rough, the ice was coming in, all this stuff. They built a wooden floating pier from the beach to this boat, and they managed with it with like 60 minutes to spare of getting that airplane onto the shore, onto the rocky shore. And then they spent days rebuilding the airplane, putting it back together, all the nuts and bolts and everything. Then they flew from Spitsbergen all the way to the North Pole and back, two guys, Admiral Richard Byrd and his, his engineer. During this flight, of course, he did it quicker than, uh, than the estimate was. So he said, well, I had, a, I had a tailwind. Well, a lot of people question that. You mean, uh, Evelyn, <clears throat> you had a, a tailwind both ways? because he flew it in rather record time at 2,500 feet, which is why he's an aviation hero instead of a statistic. But the point is, he said he flew over lush green areas where definitely none should have been. Uh, and that's all he ever said about it, officially. Then, some years later, or recently, this diary pops up. So I went to several people that knew him or knew of him or knew his style. And I asked them about this diary and I could not validate a word of it. So in my mind, it was either written after the fact by somebody who, who was trying to make a name for themselves on it. But I just, I put it in the category of personal testimony, which is fine for a scientist, but you know, personal testimony, I got to have some data. Sure. I got to have a, a leaf, a picture, a stone, you know, a bone, something to go with that. And right. I never, never could find it. So that's so in, that suppose, in 1929, yeah. he flies over the South Pole. For the first time, yeah. Right. There was a couple of expeditions to the to the South Pole, but your the, the opening that he supposedly saw, that was in the North Pole. Yes, that okay. was in the North Pole. All right. The South Pole was a much bigger continent, and he went back several times, and rumor is that in 19... 47, he took a war party down there because evidently the Nazis had survived, right, built right. the base down there, and and these were all battle-hardened troops, you know, this we just got done fighting a two-front war, and we had plenty of equipment, so we went down there to defeat them once and for all, and rumor has it that Byrd and his group came back with their tail between their legs, but he never spoke of that publicly. So I just don't know if Operation, I believe it was High Jump? Yes, well, Operation High yeah. Jump. And so uh, the, legend, the legend says that the Nazis had UFOs or UFO technology. Correct. And if there is a full-scale alien invasion from the South Pole or elsewhere, we're all going to have to be in top-level shape. And how do we do that? Through life extension. Our bodies deserve the best, but how do you choose the very best nutritional supplements or even know what's in them? Life Extension has been helping people stay healthy for over 35 years. Just like with the foods you eat, the quality, purity, and potency of the ingredients in your nutritional supplements really do matter. Life Extension supplements set the gold standard for supporting weight loss, heart, brain, bone, joint, eyes, skin, sexual health, and so much more. 
Their formulas are based on the latest scientific research and clinically validated dosages. That's one reason why 98% of their customers recommend Life Extension to their friends and family. Every Life Extension product is backed by a total satisfaction guarantee. The bottom line? Life Extension is the brand you can trust with your health. Check out Life Extension products with special savings. Visit SmartClickIdea.com. That's SmartClickIdea.com. SmartClickIdea.com. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. Explore entrepreneur, author of Charm of Favor, his new bestseller, Brooks Agnew, is here. So, um, how likely, if you were to... Uh, lease this icebreaker and head up to the North Pole. How, I mean, are you anticipating military intervention? Someone perhaps trying to prevent you from, from finding it? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's all Russian waters. It's a Russian ship. Um, it's a Russian company. It's, that's and they, they love the idea. They want to support it. There are just costs, you know, for 125 crewmen. Uh, to run for 15 days, there are costs of running this ship. So, and it has a three and a half year fuel supply, which is expensive. That, that fuel supply is about a million dollars. So they have to recover those costs somehow. And so they've got it down as low as they can get it. But no, there won't be any, there won't be any military intervention. It's the only boat on the planet that can make this trip. There, there is no military ship other than a submarine going under the ice that could even follow a ship like this. But, if there is an opening to a hollow earth, I mean, they're going to have to rewrite everything. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Because, you know, the film crew, we're going to, when we come back after, we should be 11 or 12 days on site. That's the the transit time there and the transit time back and all that. And we have a, a five-day option written into the contract. So if we do find something, we can exercise the option and stay for five days um, <clears throat> but, uh, we should come back with three to 4,000 hours of, of film. And that's, that's what all the series are going to be generated from. And I promise you, we're going to be filming in infrared, visible, ultraviolet, uh, plus all these scientific measurements and a helicopter on the ship. And if we see something it's going to go live. Well, almost live. We can't get access to a satellite, but just a few minutes a day. So we're going to packet everything, and then we'll upload it, and it will download to both continents, and everyone will kind of see it live. Every every two hours or so, the satellite goes over, and we'll upload a packet. So maybe two hours worth of stuff. So it will almost be live. And if there is an opening, how, I'm asking you to speculate here a little bit, but how do you see it? I mean, what's it going to look like? That's a, that's a tremendous question. I mean, it could be very small. Uh, it could just be in the crust and we could be dealing with a, you know, like a whirlpool of water going around. That's, that's treacherous enough. I don't know if it's big, like, most people 
say, you know, it's 100 miles across, 100 miles in diameter. It's something that gravitationally it's even possible to sail into. You know, of course, we're going to fly around it with a helicopter or take pictures of it from every angle we can. We have no intention of going inside. But part of our group, and I tend to agree with this, because I'm a scientist, I will tell you that if there is space there, there will be life there. Now, I don't know, you know, how complex it'll be. I don't know if it'll be intelligent or ultra-terrestrial or extraterrestrial. I don't know. But I do know we'll be the only consciousness signature within 500 miles of this place. If there is intelligent life there, they will probably come out to meet us. And when they do, the world is going to know. Well, uh, given, you know, this whole uh, Titanic struggle on the part of the disclosure movement to get the governments to reveal what they know about UFOs, I mean, there, if this is, let's say, part of that, uh, I mean, I, I'm thinking that they're going to resist. Uh, I hope they do. I mean, we'll document that too. No, I don't I, mean the UFOs. I mean, I mean the people that are trying to keep a lid on whatever it is they're trying to keep a lid on. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if they do, we'll document that too. I mean, people take pictures of uh, or film of Greenpeace every time they mm -hmm. come out of trying to rock a whale, a whale ship. I promise you, if military vessels uh, come out there to stop the Arctica, <laughs> I mean, they're gonna they're gonna have to be uh, they're gonna have to have something I don't want to talk about on the radio, but they're going to be on film. Everybody in the world is going to know that they don't want the Arctica to go to waters that are Russian waters. And that that's just not going to happen, Richard. That's just not going to happen. The, the satellite images of the North Pole, I've heard that they're obscured with, uh, with cloud cover as if someone, whether it's NASA, is trying to hide something. Well, the area is covered by clouds most of the time and that that's one thing the other thing is that in 2006 the noaa and umitsat which are the two satellite authorities that cover all those uh, weather satellites those optical satellites um they uh passed the data denial act the D the data denial act reads and I'm, i'll try to quote it as best i can that no real-time data will be publicly available during times of conflict or war. Hmm. And their worry is that the data could be fed into cruise missiles and that it could be used to navigate very close to the ground kind of weaponry that radar couldn't see. And so everything that people think they're seeing out there above the 60th parallel it, at like Google Earth or any of that, it's all animated. None oh. of that is real. None of that is real. Fascinating. I had no idea. Uh, so you say you're not. If there is an opening, you have a helicopter on board, but you're not. You're not going in at this point. You just want to prove that there's an opening and then tackle the uh, the actual entrance. I guess in a subsequent expedition. Yeah, you know, maybe with a drone or, or some kind of probe. I mean, nobody in their right mind wants to sail a nuclear reactor into the center of the Earth. Um, so, you know, if we get close and and we can see this oceanic depression, we see where the, you know, the, the crest of the horizon is going straight down into the planet. 
we're, we'll get the best imagery that we can of it, and and the world will see it. That's that's what's so exciting about this. And I have to tell you, I've been to now nine countries in this research. I've been to Tibet, which most Westerners never get to see, and I have never heard of or read of a subject that elicits such passion in people. People are very passionate about a hollow earth. It means something to them. I don't really know. It means something different to so many people, but it's very powerful, this meaning to them. Well, for the Tibetan monks, it would be Shangri-La, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. And in fact, if you look at Tibetan Buddhism, all the symbols, every temple you go to has this center kind of ring with foliage on the inside. Of course, it has a yin and a yang inside of it and all these rays of light coming out from it. But it's everywhere. It's all, you know, from from 18,000 feet all the way down to Lhasa at 11,000 feet. Every single temple I went to. Uh, and I'm talking about a dirt road on the upper Tibetan plateau. Not an easy trip. I don't recommend it for anybody. But uh, it was cold. It was bumpy. It was smoky and primitive. But we did it. And all every picture I have clearly shows an image of a hollow earth everywhere you go. Is that why you were in Tibet? You were looking for... I don't know, um, evidence in, in, in ancient scripts or texts? Uh, not so much the texts. That those are maybe go back to uh, 1200, 1300. But the structures, the stupas, the things that were in this cellar underneath the patala, which that's a remarkable story how we even made it down there. This stuff was built in the 7th century. I mean, most of the Chinese, you know, just just want to lock it away. They don't want the world to even know it's there. All this stuff, the layout of the Milky Way galaxy is was sitting there on the floor underneath the patala with a big turquoise stone in the center of it. It was kind of funny because I went down the stairs and I turned my light on. There were four of us, including my Tibetan guide, and I stepped out onto it. And it's it's a huge, like, 12-foot diameter swastika in the stone on the floor. And I went, wow, what's a swastika doing here? And my guide says, that's that's not a swastika. That's the Milky Way galaxy. That's the symbol of the Milky Way galaxy. This is where the Nazis got that symbol. Oh this my was gosh. built in the year 646. It was built in the year 646. So in, in that room, and it's a really tall ceiling, I say the ceiling is probably... 50 feet yeah about 50 feet so as i'm swinging my light around on the inside i i catch this gold kind of shimmer and i flash my light up on it and this thing is sitting there and he calls it a stupa and in it is a depiction of a Panchen lama that's in this kind of rainbow chamber that's lined with sapphires and this thing is all gold plated this entire thing and he said it's a stupa and it, it points to the ceiling and on the ceiling they have this four dimensional uh, mandala this stargate kind of thing and he says see the idea <coughs> is that you bury the soul or bury the body of the Panchen Lama and the soul is is transmuted or sent through this four dimensional stargate to to the next dimension 
And uh, I, I stood back and looked at it and said, well, I, I know you're calling this a stupa, but it looks like a Tesla coil to me. Hmm. I mean, and so I brought the pictures. I took pictures of it. I brought them back to the States, and I dug up my pictures of the Tesla coil and tanged if they didn't overlay perfectly. Even the, even the wings coming down from the top uh, to the sides we had ribbons wrapped around them, red, white, blue, uh, and yellow ribbons. And the ribbons were actually stylized electricity. So I thought to myself, wait a minute. 646, these guys built this thing. By the way, this, this structure is priceless. I have no idea. It could be worth it could be worth five hundred million dollars. And this is no under idea. this is under the palace with which was home to the Dalai Lama. Uh, no, no, this is under the Patala. The Dalai Lama's home is is in Lhasa, but it's several blocks away. I've okay. been to his home too. It's rather humble. Uh, the Patala is at like a temple. And okay. For up until like hundred and forty years ago, it was the tallest building in the world. Uh, it was it's enormous, but this structure's underneath there, locked you know behind behind doors with chains so i thought to myself wait a minute the tibetans saw this and they built this stupa and they 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 said that it could it could transmit souls through dimensions nikola tesla saw this but he used his skills to build it with coils of copper and use electricity they both saw the same thing they both got the same image but they handled it in different ways. Hmm. Ah, interesting. The later Tesla would uh, would attempt to uh, contact the other side, uh, like Edison. He was he was building a sort of a communication device to talk with uh, this other dimension. I guess he called it the spirit world. But so, what what do you think that, if anything, has to do with a hollow Earth? Um, well, there's an aspect to this hollow earth that is uh, multidimensional. That is to say, a lot of people say, well, you're not going to be admitted to this because there's a dimensional gate to it. You know, you have to be admitted. And I, to that, I simply reply, look, you know, if you've been as far as I've been and heard the things that I've heard from people that don't know me from anybody, that just come up to me and say, listen, I have a message for you. It's from these eight whales, and they told me this story. I wrote it down. I have it in my lab notebook, not five feet from me. Um, I very humbly have been invited to do this, and that's why I've never dropped it. You know, it's been ten over 10 years, 12 yeah, years. Yeah, long road. Since I was handed these reins, and, you know, people that know me, the reason that I do what I do for the for the big three and for so many of the Fortune 500 companies, is I never give up. I specialize in the impossible. And believe me, if they could figure it out, they could solve it, they would have. And when they can't, then they call me and I come in. And and somehow I just have a way of sticking with it or seeing through the numbers and I'm a good math, good enough mathematician, I can figure it out. But this is the one project that I have not finished in my life. And I'm not a person that likes to not finish stuff. Do you, I mean, what is your, what does your heart say? What does your gut say? I know you're a scientist, but what do you think if you ever get inside the hollow earth, 
What do you think you're going to see? What's it going to, what might it look like based on what you've read, ancient legends, people that you've talked to? Hmm. Well, I mean, you know, there's the, the little boy side of me that, 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 that wants it because I have to realize the earth's been here a long time, three and a half billion years in, in present form, more or less, give or take a, uh, 30 degrees mean temperature um and to think that we're the only sentient beings that have ever been on this planet is just is just ridiculous i know too much i know too many people not the least of which is michael cremo mm-hmm. who who have factual evidence that i've held in my hands that man or something like man has been on this planet as as old as 500 million years ago that's predates any kind of history we could imagine i have to think that at some time or another there was some cataclysmic event on the surface that precluded you know large populations from surviving on the surface in egypt i ran across a manuscript that om seti had translated when she was alive and I took a picture of it because I didn't think people would believe me because there's only one copy of this and it happened to be in Hani Elzani's house because it was a handwritten translation that she had made. And it said that the ancients escaped into the earth. Hmm. Now, that could mean that they went into caves. I mean, that's how the Jews survived multiple occupations uh, from the Babylonians on back. There's all kinds of caves and tunnels underneath Jerusalem, and that's how they survived. But I don't think that's what they mean. I think they mean into the earth. And then when you look at the Old Testament where it says, you know, in the last days, the lost ten tribes will return out of the north on a highway of ice. What do you mean the lost ten tribes? There's no lost ten tribes up there in the North Pole. My ancestor, Sir James Ross discovered the North Magnetic Pole in 1831. After his second attempt, maybe this is where I inherited this. <laughs> his first attempt, his all his ships were crushed by the ice. Now, they offloaded everything on the ice. They survived the winter, and they were picked up in the spring. And darned if the fool didn't raise the money to do it again. Only this time he was successful and found the North Magnetic Pole. So during this sojourn of his he discovered a very small seagull and you know the seagull's not built for winter it can't stand 80 below zero temperatures and yet this bird flies north for the winter it nests in the north there's no place warm in the north for this gull to go not for that little dainty (laughs) thing or is there right exactly I talked to the world's leading ornithologist on the Ross Gull. It was named after Sir James Ross. And he does not know where that bird goes to nest. All they know is that in the spring, it comes back out of the north. So it, there's there's some place up there from which the warm wind blows. There is enough biological evidence, enough geological evidence, enough cosmological evidence and I would say enough human consciousness evidence that there there's some kind of opening there. So, if and possibly I, the, the the lost ten tribes, the 
the descendants of Ephraim and Gad and Issachar and Simeon and I can't remember all of them. Reuben, Dan, Dan yeah, <laughs> yep. Zebulun. Yeah. They're all right. That's where they are. Possibly, well, possibly. I mean, Twenty Three and Me is undergoing. I call it the search for Captain America, but they they are doing the impossible. They're collecting enough genetic data from enough people who are willing to spend ninety nine bucks, which which they're probably making a little bit of money on this. But they're they're conducting the greatest gene study that's ever been done on humanity. Yes, yes. And they still have not found these tribes. They've done millions of these tests, and they have not found them. Hmm. So where did they go? Exactly. Fascinating. Oh, my. Uh, so let's just recap. The The next expedition is slated for, hopefully, did you say May? Uh, no, I would say that we have to do it in the summer, obviously, because that's when the ice gets thin enough to do it. And 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 there was an opening in two thousand eight, two thousand seven, because of the the way the wind blew and the north calved off a big piece of ice, mm-hmm. which left the Northwest Passage navigable for the first time. And I don't know, may, you know, maybe since the twelve hundreds or thirteen hundreds, but. Uh, we didn't make it. We just we just didn't make it. So since that time, you know, it's all refrozen. But this Arctica can can sail through two meters of ice. Two meters of wow. ice. This boat can go. So it could make it anyway. Uh, and I'm I'm confident it's the only boat on the planet that can that can do this. The Norwegians can't even get close. They won't even get above the 86th parallel. Or I'm sorry, 84th parallel. They have ice-rated hulls, but not ice breakers. This is a boat that the hull is designed to break ice. It it rides up on the ice and smashes through it using two seventy-five thousand horsepower nuclear electric motors. Um, <clears throat> so, you asked me what I I hope that we can find. I hope that we can find not only that there's an opening, but that it is at least in some respects, habitable. Maybe you have to have another environment. I mean, heck, we have to have an environment. We don't spend more than, what, 15% of our time outside? The rest of the time we're in shelter? Right. So, you know, why would we expect them to be any different? And maybe they don't have the ability to take solar radiation the way we do because they've been down there for so long. Maybe they're, they've, it's been bred out of them, so they can't live on the surface. <coughs> so, I don't know. It's uh, There are so many unanswered questions. It just excites me as a scientist. I, I want to I try to answer them. So, again, hopefully this, this summer? No, it's not going to happen this summer. Not this summer. Be, no, but what, what we are going to do is go through all of the research we've already done and try to do the 13-piece series on Netflix. Now, that should generate enough revenue ah, right. that we can then attract investors and go for this. Because even if we find nothing, it's going to make one hell of a reality program, oh, let yes. me tell you. <laughs> oh, yes. I'd watch that over Deadliest Catch. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> or, <laughs> That's LSU. not a bad show, but... Well, oh, they actually find crabs, though. What's the other one? The Legend of Skull Island or yes. whatever? Uh, Oak, Island. The, Oak Island. Oak yes. Island. Oak Island. Oh, yes. my gosh. That's the 
boringest thing I've ever seen in my life, and it's still on TV. <laughs> yeah, yours uh, would make those look pretty uh, pretty weak for sure. Well, uh, Everest gets climbed about every other year, and somebody makes a movie about it. Mm-hmm. This is going to blow all those movies away. You got that right. All right, Brooks. Well, thank you for the update. It's always uh, fascinating. I always learn so much whenever we talk. Thank you so much. Well, let's not wait uh, uh, so many years before the next one. Absolutely. No, we'll, um, I'm going to get you on my, uh, uh, my weekly radio show as well, and uh, we'll drill further. We'll f- drill further down. <laughs> awesome, because I graduated first in my class alphabetically. <laughs> Wish I could say that. All right, my friend. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Explorer Brooks Agnew. That guy should be a charter member of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Well, it's just about time to dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs. But before we do that, I want, of course, give you a heads up on what's coming up on the next episode of Conspiracy Unlimited. But before that, just a reminder that if you want to get in on the weekly draw and a chance to win my Strange Planet CDs, here's all you have to do. Simply rate and review this podcast. Also, subscribe if you haven't already done so. Rate and review it and then grab a screenshot of that and then email it to me at richardserrett1 at gmail.com. Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, the numeral one, at gmail.com. Don't forget to include your, your full name and your mailing address, and I draw a name every Friday, and uh, good luck to you. Well, February is almost gone. How is your weight loss program going? Unfortunately, the commitment to weight loss often fades. Many people simply give up in the first 90 days. The key is having the right mindset. Getting thin and staying that way lies in our thought processes, and hypnotherapy can make all the difference. Now clinical hypnotherapist Dr. Stephen G. Jones has created a set of five audio hypnotic sessions that apply the power of hypnosis to reprogram the mind and replace bad habits with vibrant, positive new habits and help you achieve natural and long-lasting weight loss. Weight loss hypnotherapy really works, and it's available now at a special discount. Isn't it time to lose those extra pounds? Check out weight loss hypnotherapy right now at smartclicksavings.com. That's smartclicksavings.com. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, is an alien satellite in retrograde orbit around the Earth? Billy Carson from Forbidden Knowledge on The Black Knight. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.